Hi, I'm Todd Billings, and this is the End of the Christian Life Podcast. Healthy, happy, and healed. Isn't that what the Christian life is all about? But my life doesn't look like that, and maybe yours doesn't either. In my late 30s, I was diagnosed with incurable cancer. It will kill me if nothing else does first. As a cancer patient, I found myself in a new world, one inhabited by the dying, without good help, without cure, but at times with deep joy in living the gift of life. I wrote a book about this called The End of the Christian Life, and I'm still learning what it all means. In this podcast, you're invited to travel with me as I talk with some extraordinary people that I've discovered in the process of writing the book and who I'm still learning from. Scholars, pastors, funeral directors, therapists, these wise souls have walked in the dark valley themselves and with others. So let's get started. I'm really honored to have Mr. Thomas Lynch with us today. He is an award-winning writer, poet, and he is a funeral director, or in the title of one book of his that we'll be talking about that I love, he is an undertaker. The undertaking is what the book is called. There's a excellent frontline documentary on it as well. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation, Tom. Well, thank you for the invitation, Todd. I'm glad to be here. This book is one that I've come back to a number of times and have recommended frequently to students who are preparing for ministry and pastors. And there's just so many ways I can commend it. I mean, it's beautiful, it's funny, but I found myself thinking through some similar issues as I was writing The End of the Christian Life about the place of mortality in our contemporary society. And so we'll going to be probing into some of those questions. But first of all, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself as you are the son of a funeral director or an undertaker, as you use the term in the book? You and is it three of your brothers have been funeral directors? Uh, I think two brothers, a brother-in-law. Um, okay. We work in the funeral home. Every We all, we just don't know what else to do. Okay. <laughs> What was it like growing up in that context? And I remember at one point in the book, you said that you realized what your father did had less to do with what he did to the dead than what he did for the living in the fact of their mortality, the fact that they are dying. Uh, For the uh, sons and daughters of funeral directors or undertakers, the notion that uh, mortality can interrupt the mundane is sort of baked into the pie. We live as if people die because in our family life growing up and then 
once we take over the family enterprise, we find that everything can be interrupted by a death in someone else's family. Or as my uh, wife used to say, when I kept a phone near our bed at night, when it would ring at three in the morning, she'd say, someone better be dead. In other words, (laughs) it's an emergency. This is not a casual call to service, you see. So we grew up knowing that our father could be called to take care of the dead and serve the living uh, at any time in the middle of our uh, little league baseball games, in the middle of our Easter's and Christmas celebrations, in the middle of family reunions, in the middle of uh, Sunday dinner. There was no time that was kept separate from the contingencies of mortality. So we learned that early, I think. Yeah, one of the striking things as I was rereading is just the way in which you describe the life of an undertaker as one where death is an everyday thing. You know, it's just a phone call away in terms of serving the living in which, you know, they have lost a loved one, while also giving the body proper reverence. And it seemed like it was a, it's a difficult angle, at least for an outsider, to get a sense of, because you might just think, oh, well, I'm here just to serve the living, and so what I do with the body doesn't matter. It's just a shell, or, you know, you deal with some of those phrases. Because you make it clear that if Larry has died, Larry doesn't care what happens to his body. Yeah, I've noticed that. I mean, having spent a good few hours uh, with and among uh, the dead, <laughs> I've never, no one's ever said to me, I'd prefer the blue pinstripe suit, please. And only mom, uh-huh. only mums and gladioli. But um, they, they say nothing about this. And uh, so I take that to mean they don't care, but they do matter <laughs> to the living. And I can speak to this in not only sort of experiential terms in the macro sense. Last uh, Last month, we got word that my daughter died in uh, California, and Hmm. she had taken her own life. Oh, no. And um, I've always regarded mental illness and depression as illnesses similar to diabetes and heart disease and cancer, Hmm. and that um, among the final fatal symptoms of uh, mental illness sometimes include suicide. But... Hmm. Be that as it may, um, I have always said, Todd, that a good funeral is one that by getting the dead where they need to go, the living get where they need to be. Hmm. So there is not this duality of purpose as much as there is this commingling of purpose. And hmm. as a theologian, you will understand that there is this tendency for us to sort of put things in slots so that there is the spiritual life and the physical life. Mm -hmm. And this is what brings us to uh, sort of, I'd say fairly uh, well-meaning, but otherwise ignorant statements like it's just a shell. Hmm. The human body is not just an anything. It is the only thing we have to get us around and about. It is the incarnate thing. Hmm. And I say somewhere in that book that if Uh, Jesus had decided to have his self-esteem issues dealt with rather than be crucified, we would not be Christians. Mm -hmm. It's what he did, what was done to his body 
the redemptive suffering for our sake in our theology that makes people think of it as love incarnate. And to put a little finer point on it, if he had raised the notion of himself from the dead, no one would celebrate Easter. It's that he raised his body from the dead. Yeah, yeah. The corpse walked and Mm. talked and appeared. And so we are an incarnate species and people. And in the same way, when it comes to caring for our dead, one of the first things we have to do is get them where they need to go. Undertakers are possessed of some information that no one wants to get from us. So one of the things I found out when I got called by the medical examiner where my daughter died was that um, funeral directors are possessed of information no one wants from us. She was um, not identified immediately. So in terms of mortality, she was a Jane Doe in the Marin County Morgue in California. Now, the, the first thing that occurred to me is I have to get her home. Whatever's going to be done, we have to get her home and get her body home. And funeral directors are among those people in our culture, last responders, I suppose we should call them, who know what can happen to a Jane Doe in a morgue in a large county in a distant state at the end of the continent. Mm-hmm. And those are the fears that we carry around with us in the same way that we carry around with us the fear of what happens when kids uh, eat hard candy or someone starts playing with gun or if they don't wear their seat belts or someone got in the car who was drinking. All the different ways you've seen people die. Yeah, yeah the death happens. And I know my father lived with this fear. I know I have always lived with this fear. And I remember sitting in the back of church uh, years ago for the funeral of a young woman who had died, and her father wanted to eulogize her, and he stood in the pulpit and said, the things we fear the most will hunt us down. And I thought, that sounds like a, a line of Wordsworth or Shakespeare or William Butler Yeats. It's ten syllables. It has an iambic count to it. It, And I never forgot that. And the thing that I always feared was that I would outlive uh, one of my children. Hmm. And here I have. And it's hard not it's hard not to see that as sort of, you know, fear working in into the, you know, the general mix of things. But I do know that getting my daughter's body home and laid out among her people so that they could say, yes, what we heard happened, what we feared happened, what we were told happened, has happened. Hmm. They, they can see for themselves. There is this strange comfort in it, Todd. I can't explain it any other way. To know that things realign in your heart, in your mind, in your spirit. And um, I know walking away from her grave, I had the, the clear sense that, yes, it, it is by getting the dead where they need to go, the living get where they need to be. And where I got to was not like fixed or healed or closure or any of those other silly tropes we use to make it sound easy. Mm -hmm. I did have a foot in the door of a future in which I could see myself and I could see others whom I love and 
I could see that we weren't always going to be as desolate as we were on the day. Hmm. So I don't think people want to know from undertakers what happens when a child is beaten to death by a parent. Mm-hmm. I don't think people want to know what happens when a when a spouse drinks bleach or um, starves to death from some anomaly. Hmm. I don't think people want to know what happens uh, with bodies that go unidentified in distant morgues. But it is important that our dead back home to let them go again. That is so. And I I know that now from immediate experience. I wish I didn't know it that way, but yeah. that's Yeah, wow. It seems like there's something about being embodied creatures, incarnate creatures, as you said, that we are deeply uncomfortable with, that facing the dead, having the dead body with us and not just treating that as something just to be disposed of, that it provides a reality check for us, but one that we don't necessarily seek out or want on our own. No, I think we get caught sort of between competing impulses, the impulse to do nothing at all and the impulse to do everything. And we know at some level it really, you know, that nothing is going to fix this. But we think, oh, I have to get all of her pictures together. Or we think, I don't, want, I don't want to see anybody or talk to anyone. Those competing impulses is why the undertaking, as I call it, is to encourage people to sort of work their way into a sort of middle ground where we do what we can. We try to find a narrative to explain this to ourselves and to others. And I think that's where theology comes in, Todd, isn't it? Where, I mean, the theology that I grew up with was that we live our lives, we die as everything in nature does, and then we go to a heaven where we are adjudicated for our good and bad behaviors, and eventually we live on in eternity because, as the liturgy says, if we share in Christ's death, we share in his resurrection. That is the theology, that is the story, the narrative that holds up the mystery of of mortality for us. And the trouble is, as no doubt you've observed, that people are not as willing to take on such narratives as they used to be. Mm-hmm. People are not as eager to let the church define for them what it is that happens when someone dies. Mm-hmm. So what we have done in a, in a sense is we've organized these clumsy sort of karaoke biopics that take the place of a funeral where we talk about how good Nana's uh, chocolate chip cookies were as if that's the the same as, behold, I show you a mystery. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the jobs of theology is to keep the story nimble enough and believable enough and understandable enough that we come away from a death in the family knowing that the spiritual life is not a theory, we are living it, Hmm. and that we might get a glimpse or we might be happily haunted by our cloud of witnesses. Mm-hmm. And if we're not, what good are they? You know, if, yeah. there, if, if there are not apparitions of some sort, if we don't see the ghosts, 
who are walking and talking and upholding us the days of our lives. Yeah, amen. Feel free to pontificate whenever you want about the role of theology there. Um, it's, well, I um, feel this from uh, a man you, you mentioned earlier, Thomas Long, who we have yeah. uh, good friends for uh, not not long enough, but a good few years, and we wrote a book together. We we taught together be, because he invited me to come down to um, the Candler School of Theology to to talk to uh, student pastors or student uh, preachers about the poetry of the homily. And um, I, I mean, in the beginning, it it really was the word, you know. Yeah. And so we do have to have a language for these things. Absolutely. And one of the things I found both as a cancer patient and then in the course of writing The End of the Christian Life is that we're in a cultural moment where there are a lot of competing visions. So one of the everyday strategies is just to think that dying is something that happens to other people and not to me, whether it's um, a sense of power you can have through these sophisticated computers we carry around in our pockets in cell phones or um, the fact that funerals are something that a number of my seminary students have never been to a funeral or have been to maybe one or two funerals. And it's just not a part of many people's life. It's not expected for somebody attending church to just go to a funeral unless you are sort of their special family or friend. But then also some different aspects as well. Um, so the idea that rather than participating in the death and resurrection of Christ, basically we've been promised heaven as a place, as a family reunion where we get to go golfing and deer hunting and all the sorts of things that we like to do before. And it's it's interesting in one survey, it was noting how belief in the existence of God was going down, but belief in the afterlife was going up. And I remember one of the sociologists when interviewed about it said, well, it seems like people feel like an afterlife is owed to them, um, even if they're not sure they believe in God. Um, and so it's a some very different storylines out there. And a lot of the storylines don't necessarily value the body. And so I think it's not surprising with some of these that you'll have a celebration of life where the person is made into a kind of celebrity or their, you know, few minutes of fame, but no body present. And yeah, so there's just just some very different stories that people are starting to inhabit in how they treat the dead and and approach death. Well, the 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 tendency to downsize the dead at their own obsequies is particularly American, and sadly, it it fits into a, a an ease of theology where many clergy like it because it. It can be worked into a schedule of the church between the daycare center and the car wash and the bake sale and the Sunday homily easier than, you know, Tom dies on Tuesday, his family wants a Friday funeral. That's hmm. These are emergency situations and it involves sort of a, I mean, it's much easier to handle the idea of Tom than it is. Uh -huh 
to handle the dead body of Tom in all its heft and bulk and trouble. And it's beginning to smell also. That's the thing that <laughs> we should put in. That's why funerals always seem like in a, an emergency situation. So we have taken the dead out of their own funerals in a way that if we did it with the bride and groom at their weddings or the baby at the baptism, we'd say, uh-huh. there's something missing here. But but we gladly gather for a celebration of life, everybody with their own story and the, that brittle grin or a good prescription. And we, you know, we start telling little anecdotes. Well, redemptive suffering and resurrection is not a little anecdote. It's not a little story. It's a big story. It's the overarching narrative that we need. And not everybody needs to be a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim to get through this. Mm-hmm. They better have something a little more, a little more uh, sturdy than, you know, how dad really liked to cheat at golf or, or some other uh, laugh line that'll get people giggling instead of grieving, which is really what the celebration of life is based on, the notion that somehow a good laugh is, is really a lot better than a good cry. Hmm. In actual fact, and in theology, they are the same release. One gives way to the other. The wince and the grin are like strange twins on the same face, requiring the same muscles and oftentimes the exact same uh, emotional pilgrimage to get to. So I I really do think that one of the essential characteristics of a good funeral is the dead guy. Yeah. And, and, and the notion that we can somehow, you know, call everybody together and, you know, have a life-affirming uh, music and good finger food and someone on hand, reverend closure to proclaim it's going to be okay. That's, you know, and everybody's welcome, but the dead guy, that is equivalent to a baptism without the baby mm-hmm. or a wedding without the bride and groom. It's the idea of the thing. It's not the thing itself. I say, if you're going to burn your dead, go stand by the fire, warm by it, look into the light of it, wonder about the mystery and the gift of it. If you're going to bury your dead, bring a shovel, stand in the dirt, weep into the abyss that you are consigning your dead to. That's how we get through these things. And the only way around them is through them. That's the, that's the rub. It's not easy. It's grief work. They don't call it grief play. It's grief work. Hmm. And so much of it does have to do with the way in which we come to know this through the body. Yeah. I'm reminded of a part that I just started laughing out loud with your book and was telling a student about recently. When you talk about the flesh toilet, how it has more than any other single invention has civilized us in ways that religion and law could never accomplish. (laughs) No more morning office of the chamber pot or outhouse where sights and sounds and odors remind us of the corruptibility of the flesh. Yeah. I lived for a, a couple years in context where you know there was no flush toilet and that completely makes sense um like every time you need to do what humans do to pee or poop Mm -hmm. um we remind ourselves of who we are 
but the flush toilet, no, you know, I'm not against flush toilets. Um, <laughs> Five of them on this premises here. Uh-huh. So, yeah. But it can be part of a kind of a way of retraining us to think that, yeah, our mortality is just an idea or our embodiment is just an idea. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately goes down to the deeper story that you were speaking about that, well, maybe Jesus just came to make me feel better about myself because, like, why would Jesus need to come for my body, for a dying and rising body? I mean, my body's not really that big of a deal, is it? I mean, there's a certain plausibility to that in yeah. an age of flush toilets that there there isn't in in other contexts. Well, you don't have to look at the shit that happens, literally. Yeah. And um, yeah. And, and the embodied part of our being can be uh, minimized. And I mean, I think the reverend clergy will most notice this when it occurs to them that their churches are emptying because people are deciding to be with you in spirit Sunday mornings at 11. Uh-huh. Rather than, and they're at home having another bagel and reading the New York Times, but they're with you in spirit and they may or may not send their stipend in or their check in or their their uh, faith gifts, but um, uh, showing up and being there are big parts of the equation, is, at least in terms of our vitality and mortality. So, yeah, I I <laughs> I do think that the very same misguidance that arrives us at a celebration of life arrives us at churches that are emptied of the people who nonetheless have a deep spiritual life, but they just don't have anything to do with religion anymore. The ties uh-huh. bind us, bind us bodily into one family in, yeah. in search of our relationship with God. Those bindings are loosed. And, yeah. and that's how everybody becomes spiritual, but not religious. Yeah, yeah. One thing I found as I was researching my book is that cancer patients with incurable cancers, terminal cancers, there's been study after study that they're more religious than the general population than they were before, whether you measure in terms of practice, measure in terms of belief, just the fact that they are slowly having their body fail and thinking about dying seems to make them pray a lot more <laughs> and mm-hmm. so forth. And at first I was like, wow, this this could be like a real sign of hope. I mean, I have an incurable cancer myself. Maybe there's like a voice to the broader culture here. But then when I looked closer at the literature, a lot of people in this category um, still aren't that attracted to some of the deeper Christian story in terms of participating in the death and resurrection of Christ. Like the prayers were almost always for healing in the sense of like making it all go away. And read Christian Wyman. Yes. Yes. And I've met Chris and yeah, yeah. Yeah. And have you read Christopher Hitchens? I've read some of his early things, but not before he, not what he wrote shortly before he died. Yeah, I I think those, I mean, what you are saying about the dichotomy in our thinking about mortality, I think is represented in in those two really fine writers, you know? And Christian Wyman and Christopher Hitchens, like yourself, all suffered from 
the body ceasing to be your friend. Do you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what Edgar Allan Poe called the imp of the perverse. Our own mortality is is in us from our birth. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I think there is a, a great deal to be understood about that. But the numbers on mortality are really convincing, Todd. They hover right uh-huh. up. A hundred percent. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. Mm-hmm. For a long time, they've been a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, um, the pandemic has brutally instructed us about how to die alone hmm. and hmm. how to grieve alone and how to limit the number of people we can call on to help us to carry and bury and burn the dead, you know? Yeah. But yeah. I, I, re- I really do think that it is still um, incumbent upon us. When I say us, certainly the reverend clergy are required to be there in the room to say something uh, really silly and full of hope, like, behold, I show you a mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I have had, as you might imagine, many notes from dear friends since my daughter's death. I think one of the the most comforting was from Tom Long, who said, this pandemic makes it impossible to run to where you are and sit in silence before the mystery of it with you. I just, Hmm. his willingness to belly up to this difficult bar with me is what what condolence means, to be sad with. Hmm. And I think we owe that to each other, the willingness Hmm. to take up our share of the shoulder work, the shovel work, the witness work, and the sadness. Hmm. Hmm. And it's something that we do for one another, and also we see ourselves there. Um, yeah, we do it as... for one another in hopes that someone will do it for us when the time comes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, an act of realization that that is where I'm going to. Yeah. 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 Wow. Well, I would love to chat for another half an hour but this is what we've designated for our podcast time but thank you so much tom for this conversation for your work and writing which gives such insight into how we relate to death and dying and yeah and also putting a good word in for theology yeah i love it well you keep me in your prayers i'll keep you in mine and congratulations on your new book thanks tom yeah i will keep you in my prayers with the loss of your daughter. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for the End of the Christian Life podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to give us a rating on iTunes and tell your friends about it. And you can find my book, The End of the Christian Life, on Amazon.com or any other major retailer. Thank you, and blessings to you.